Well, hello everyone. Hello, hello. I am Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And this is Blood and Wine. Blood and Wine. And today is actually very special. We are coming to you from Bending Branch Winery here in Comfort, Texas. Yes, and we have a special guest with us today. Hi, I'm uh, Jennifer McInnes Fidel, and I'm the general manager here at Bending Branch Winery. Yeah. So, and we've done a quick little intro to the winery. We've got a tour mm -hmm. after our recording, so yes. we'll definitely give you guys more information. <laughs> but um, this winery is uh, just south of Fredericksburg by a little while. It's I was so, looking at the map. Yeah, yeah. we're about uh, 30 minutes south of Fredericksburg, about an hour west of San Antonio, right off of I-10. So when you exit for Fredericksburg, you're in comfort. Yes. <laughs> so it's absolutely gorgeous out here. Mm -hmm. The roads are curvy and narrow. It's mm -hmm. just beautiful Texas Hill Country. <laughs> uh, and if y'all don't know, Texas Hill Country is like the wine region of Texas. There are wineries here. Um, everyone says Fredericksburg because I think that's like the the, the heart of Hill Country or whatever. But there are so many wineries around here. Yeah. So, um, Jen, do you want to give us a little bit of a background on Bending Branch? Sure. Um, just add about the Texas Hill Country. There are actually 56 wineries in the Texas Hill Country wow. Association, which I'm about to be president of that, too. Oh, oh that is um, awesome. So, but Bending Branch has been here since uh, it was established in 2009. Uh, Dr. Robert Young bought the property with the intention of uh, building a winery out here and having a vineyard. And um, he was really intrigued by the grape Tanat, T-A-N-N-A-T. Um, he, he is a retired medical doctor. And so he was really um, intrigued by that grape because of the amount of, we're going to get really science and geeky for a yeah, second, <laughs> of uh, procyanidins and the anthocyanins that are the components in the grape skins mm -hmm. um, that really can help um, your heart, your cardiovascular system. So okay. he had read a book called The Red Wine Diet, which you guys should read by Dr. Uh, yes. Roger Corder, um, <laughs> yes. that kind of goes into way more detail about this. But he was excited about that grape planted here in Texas, um, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is just like, I mean, we're basically, I mean, we're like here, healthy. This is essentially the gym is what I'm I should go on to say that we were awarded Top Texas Winery this year. Oh, that's Houston excellent. Congratulations. Um, thank you. That was based on our wine scores. And mm -hmm. just in the past few months, we've been rated by James Suckling, two wines that had 90 points, a wine that oh had gosh. 89 oh. points. Um, we just found out from San, San Francisco International uh, wine competition that we also were awarded 92 points for our Malbec here in Texas. Wow. Um, yep, 93 yep. points for our Petite Syrah from Shell Creek Vineyards. Um, so wow. oh my gosh. in a very short period of time, we have <laughs> made some history. Yeah. And we'll, I, I mean, to be honest, I'm surprised being in Austin. I've been to the Frederick mm -hmm. area and Hill Country. I haven't heard of you guys. Like, I honestly don't know how um, mm -hmm. because we tasted a little bit of the wines of Vitigo. They're and delicious. So Good. Like the Malbec does not taste like a traditional Malbec. Like mm -hmm. it was so good. Um, I'm thinking that was my favorite that we tried actually because yeah. I keep talking about it. So I think that was <laughs> <my favorite. laughs> so, uh, great. I but, think my favorite was the Petite Syrah. Was it? Yeah. That was a really good one. Really good. Yeah. We um, like big bold reds, as yeah. you can tell. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm all for that. That is 
that sinks to my heart, the big bold reds. Um, so one random question, we were looking at the About Us, and it talks about a lot of the science stuff you just mentioned, how yes. y'all use old, you know, old world winemaking mixed with science. Could you yes. explain that a little bit yes. more? Mm -hmm. So um, Dr. Bob, who at Halloween is Dr. Weinstein, <laughs> um, because he is such a fanatic about science. Um, so he really, when he was first coming to the Texas wine region um, from Atlanta, he had a practice in Atlanta and he's originally from Kentucky, mm -hmm. but he started seeing all the wineries out here and it kind of got his wheels turning. And, um, but one of the things he felt like was missing in Texas Reds was uh, body and structure. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. a result of our uh, growing season. It's so warm here that typically it's condensed. And so the grapes might not always get to the maturity level that we want them. Mm. And so he started looking at different techniques that you could coax more of those um, color and flavor and tannin compounds out of the grape skins, which is grape skins is, of course, what gives you mm -hmm. red wine that right. contact. Mm -hmm. And so um, one of the processes he read about was actually um, from a, a research paper that was written in French. He'd read about this um, guy who had tried cryomaceration where he had actually um, taken the grapes and then done layers with dry ice and frozen the grapes oh. first and then started uh, fermentation after they thawed out. So we did that on a much larger scale uh, where um, the grapes were destemmed uh, and then wrapped and we took them to an industrial freezer mm -hmm. uh, and they'll stay frozen for a little bit. So you know when you freeze anything, it expands. Mm -hmm. So that expansion process breaks down some of the cellular structure in the grapes. And so when you take them out of the freezer and they thaw out, you then start fermentation mm -hmm. or we start fermentation uh, and finish it like we normally would. So then when we press, we're getting about 25% or so 30% more of the color, flavor, tannin oh. compounds out of the grapes that you would otherwise be throwing out. So mm -hmm. that's one of the processes that he uses. The other one is a process called flash detente that was uh, mm -hmm. developed in France, has been used in Europe for several decades. Mm -hmm. um, fairly new here in um, the United States. There are about 13 of these machines in the country. We were the first one outside of California to get a flash detente machine here in a little, little comfort, Texas. <laughs> um, but that is a completely opposite process where um, we put the grapes, de-stem them, they go into the flash unit uh, and it heats them to mm -hmm. 185 degrees um, and then rapidly cools them uh, through a vacuum chamber. They hit a vacuum chamber that's negative two and a half times atmospheric pressure. And so that mm. bursts the cell walls. And so we get oh. nearly 100% extraction of the color and flavor oh. and tannin. So um, we use that process only on red wines mm -hmm. and, and not on everything. It kind of depends on um, the growing season and the grapes uh, themselves. But those are the two processes that we use. They're a little bit different just to kind of yeah. coax more of that. That's really cool. And you mentioned, uh, and hopefully this doesn't sound like an ignorant question, but you mentioned that y'all de-stem them. Do some wineries not de-stem the, the grapes? Um, those... Some people will do a whole cluster, uh, a whole cluster fermentation. Uh, it just kind of depends. That's when you, when you do whole cluster, cluster fermentation, you get a, a little bit more of that gritty grippiness. Yeah. Um, and, um, so a lot of times you see it more with white white wines that they'll do like oh. whole cluster press because you're not uh, the white white grapes will come in and you'll just you can press them whole yeah. cluster. Mm -hmm. um, but traditionally, I would say a majority of people do de-stem de them. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. So you mentioned that the uh, Tanat grape is grown here. Do y'all grow any of your other grape varietals, or do you mostly like? 
get them shipped in and then make the wine here? So we have, uh, we work with 10 vineyards throughout mm -hmm. the state of Texas that either we contract the grapes or we purchase the vines and have an agreement with the growers that they're growing them specifically for us. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are three here in the hill country that we source from. Two of them are just within 10 minutes of us, one in Centerpoint and one on the way to Sisterdale. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in Centerpoint, we're growing Tanat, Suchow, and Peak Pool Blanc, which is a white wine variety. And mm -hmm. close to Sisterdale, we're gr growing Malbec. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, the aforementioned Malbec. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> and then we get Tanat from quite a few vineyards mm -hmm. uh, throughout the state. One is in Mason, Texas at Talent Vineyards. They're mm -hmm. growing uh, uh, that for us and then um the bigger vineyards we work with in the uh, high plains um texas high plains which is an hour or so southwest of lubbock 85 percent okay. of the grapes are grown in texas are yeah. grown up in that area because wow. of the arid climate and the higher mm -hmm. altitude mm -hmm. okay. um and so we work really closely with newsome vineyards uh their premier grower in texas and so we get uh also malbec to not petite syrah tempranillo and cabernet sauvignon from that vineyard and then we get to not from two other vineyards in the High Plains. Um, so we awesome. bring all of those in and we use them either for single vineyard, uh, varietal, varietal single vineyard designations or in a blend like um, the blend that you guys are going to taste. Yes, that's all actually right. a great transition. Yeah, that's a perfect Let's get segue. into this wine. Um, so we're doing the Branch Texas Red, um, mm -hmm. and I heard this one just recently won a couple of medals this year. It's won a lot of things. It yes. <laughs> um, won the top red blend at the houston rodeo in 2018 mm -hmm. um it's one of our most highly decorated wines um it's got a lot of bling awesome fancy yes so this yeah. one that you are about to drink actually was the first wine that we released that went through the flash process that i talked about oh okay. excellent. so it's um about 45 percent each malbec and mavedra that were both uh, through flash detente fermentation and then 10% petite syrup. This looks really pretty. Mm -hmm. How's that sound? Me too. Mm. It's one of my favorite sounds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. That's really smooth. Oh, I like this. Ooh, what do you taste? I'm getting a little bit of like an oakiness. Because I'm not sure what it is that I taste. I have a taste and I don't know what it is. Should I say all the words I always say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just ball and garden hose. <laughs> now, um, I don't know. It has like a very first flavor is the sharp, like fruitiness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's very smooth and mellow. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to describe wine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say words till they stick. Mm -hmm. But um, And you said that... This wine is actually going to be available in HEB here pretty soon. Um, yes, it, it went into some HEBs around the rodeo last year as a promotion, but it's going into um, HEBs awesome. starting a lot of HEBs in uh, February timeframe. Oh, nice. that is perfect. That's yes. soon. So the great thing about this wine is um, it's really young and bright and um, it's got some great red fruit to mm -hmm. it, but it's, it's really designed to be enjoyed right away. It's, there's, you know, it's easy drinking, good everyday wine, great with a pizza, a burger. Oh, yes. Yes. By itself on a Tuesday. <laughs> That's, mm -hmm. yep. Generally, what I do all the time. Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> Thursday, Friday. It's fine. All right. Oh and I have, I love the label. Thank yeah. you. I love how 
it's like simple and nice and it's like oh you got the branch going on and mm -hmm. the winery logo mm -hmm. nice. i love that we have back here it's comfort in a bottle because we're in comfort oh i love oh that yeah <laughs> that's oh, perfect i think i'm gonna sit back and enjoy this texas <laughs> is it the texas red branch texas red oh, this is red right highly decorated well, Jen, oh. thank you so much for yes, taking time. Thank you. Of and we're really excited to be here. We're looking forward to our tour and trying more of the wines. Yeah, thanks Absolutely. for coming out, guys. Enjoy your wine. Right. Thank you. <laughs> All right, y'all. We are back from Bending Branch Winery. Yes, and oh my gosh. Yeah. First off, I just have to say thank you so so much to Jen and to Bending yes. Branch. Thank you for, so much yes. for sponsoring this episode. Um, being on our podcast, chatting a little bit about your process, which still just the science involved in it still blows my oh, mind. Oh, yeah. I just never would have imagined that. I, I don't know. I mean, yes, I know there is a, a science to making absolutely. wine. Like there absolutely is. And just the fact that basically wine is, you know, fermented grapes, which means grapes that are yeah. like not going bad, but kind of. Yeah. I mean, that's why I always think about, you know how I do the first time someone ever did it. And <laughs> they were like, oh, this nasty. I'm going to try it. <laughs> but then they felt real good after. I know. But they had to have had enough that first time. Yeah. But no, I, um, I think it's so interesting because you technically can make wine without like going super scientific. You know, a lot of the, yeah. like, old school, very old world wineries. That's how they still do it today. But I think the fusion of the old world with, with the science, science, I'm like, that is so cool. Well, and... And it makes the wine so good. I know, oh, I don't know so if I mentioned amazing. it during the interview or not, but this is, I would say this, even if they weren't sponsoring us, this is far and away the best wine I have ever had it coming out of texas me too me i mean too. It, and you know i've tried quite a few of the wineries yeah. um around the state but this is by far the yeah. absolute best and, and texas hill country wine isn't bad no it's good it's, it's, it's good, good. Wine. this was like i don't know this this felt like what i imagined tasting like going to france and tasting wine would taste like, like well and didn't you hear um i i don't think this was in the interview but so just so y'all know we we did the interview but then we also had a tour of the full grounds yes. we did wine tasting we tried like 14 to 15 different wines and uh the tanat grape wasn't it grown in france there for a little bit and then california or something I really feel like something yes. was set. Yeah, it was like South Central France, I yeah. think. So that was one thing that I kept thinking as well, that there were a lot of French influences. Mm -hmm. With, um, you know, the other winery that we went to on our way home yesterday, they had more of the Tuscan and Italian influences. Yeah. Bending Branch was very much, to, at least to me, it seemed like very French-inspired. Yes. yes. Which I think... But it was still very true to, like, it also felt like Texas. Yes. Like, it was just... Well, it was, like, French I, country. It was I've still very Texas country. It, but, but um, so, seriously, thank you, Dr. Bob, for starting a winery. Yes. Because it's wonderful. So um, So, they also have a wine club. Yes, they um, do. And do you want to tell our listeners yeah. a little bit about that? So, first off, they do ship their wine to 38 states plus D.C., so you can check out if they ship to your area at 
bendingbranchwinery.com. But one of the coolest things that they do are their two different wine clubs. Yes. So the first one is their branch club, which is three bottles three times a year. So they do shipments in March, September, and December. Mm -hmm. And they also have corresponding, like, pickup parties and stuff if you live near the location, which sounds really cool. Yes. Um, The March party is like a Kentucky Derby. And they do juleps, but with one of their wines. Mm-hmm. Um, September is a the wine club picnic. And then December is the blending party. Which yes. sounds so cool. Well, and I'll get into it here in a sec. So with the branch club, you get complimentary tasting for the member. And then up to three guests whenever you visit the winery so or the many. tasting room. There's so many guests to be able to bring with you. I know. You and three, like four of y'all could just bust up in and be like, brewery tasting. I'm a member. Yeah. Um, you get 10% off of all wine purchases and logo merchandise. 15% off cases of wine. Free shipping on 12 bottle case purchases. Access to the members only wine club lounge. Which that's where we recorded. Yes. Actually, it was in the, the wine club lounge. Um, and they have the most comfortable red couch I think I've ever sat on. I know. It, it made me want us to get a couch like that for our podcast studio. Uh, same. Um, we have to build a podcast studio first. But I know, but I'm just yeah. saying. <laughs> um, and then you also get an invitation to the wine club picnic. Um, so the 1840 club, which is the next one up, is one that I really want to join. And I, we've been just, we've been talking about it since we got back we from have the winery. Been. We absolutely uh, have. So the 1840 Club, it's six bottles three times a year. and Which is a good amount. Yeah. Like, that's a lot of wine. Yeah. You get the complimentary tasting for you and three guests, 15% off all wine and logo purchases, 20% off cases of wine, free shipping on the 12-bottle cases, access to the members-only wine club lounge, Invitation to the Wine Club Picnic. Invitation to the exclusive 1840 Blending Party. So the blending party that I mentioned earlier, she was describing it to us, and it sounds so fun. Uh, So they split y'all into groups, and you have different... It was like different wines. Yeah. And you could just build your own blend. And it's like a competition. Yeah, and someone wins, and it is... Yeah. That just... Sounds like so much fun. I I want to. I want to mix my own wine so bad. Yes. So we're very, very much contemplating joining the 1840 Club. Not only because of all of those perks, yeah, but because we really want to do the blending. Same. Well, and you also get party a complimentary tour and barrel tasting once a year for up to four people. Which y'all barrel tasting? Yes. Yes, please. I've done that once before, and it is so interesting to like taste the wine when it's still inside the barrel but yeah so also um if you are in texas or you're visiting and want to visit the winery it's in comfort texas and it's i don't know like 45 miles up i-10 from san antonio west yeah something like that so if you're in san antonio take i-10 west like 45 miles and the the winery is maybe 10 minutes from the highway? It really wasn't that far. No. And I I really just 
can't express enough how beautiful it was yeah. there in Hill Country mm-hmm. with like the rolling hills and well, just and it, the nice private area. Like you're back, yeah. you follow like some smaller back roads to get mm-hmm. to the winery. So it does just seem yeah. like very private and nice. It does. And it felt very genuine, if that makes yeah. sense. So a lot of the wineries in Hill Country, some of them can seem very touristy because they're in more traveled areas right. and and that's fine i mean if you if you have a lot of people visiting obviously you want you know you're you kind of want to streamline it or whatever yeah but this one it's a little off the beaten path and it's just so oh god it's so homey and so nice it was and it it was the kind of place comfortable. very comfortable yes it was the kind of texas pla- okay. so you know what I, success yeah okay but no, it was the kind of place I could see myself sitting there with friends and having wine for like six hours. Whereas a lot of the other wineries, you would feel uncomfortable doing that. Right. Right. But no, totally. I, uh, I loved it so much. Me too. And um, I just wanted to highlight again the Branch Texas Red. Yes. We've got our second bottle, so I'm about to pop this open. But a Wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the tasting notes of this one. Um, it is, and, and Jen talked about this. She said it's a blend of Malbec, Morverde, Petite Syrah, and Tanat. And there's a, some acidity and um, structure to the wine that definitely balances out. It's just nice, full-bodied red and it, you know, like she said, it's their first release of wine using the flash technology, which was the ones where you freeze the grapes and then yeah. thaw them really slowly. And this is also the wine that is going to be releasing to HEB in February of 2019. So if you are looking for an incredible wine, I'm so excited to taste it again. Me too. But if you're looking for an incredible wine at a pretty good affordable price, yeah, 16 bucks. I mean, it's $16 for 16 bucks. It's so good. Well, and it's, it is a very, very solid wine mm-hmm. for $16. And yeah. I mean, I would absolutely pay, I'd pay 20 for this bottle. I mean, so easy. <laughs> um, again, like I said, the best Texas wines I've ever had in my life. Um, but let's do this. Okay. I'm going to try to pour a proper glass. Right at the curve. Okay, now I'm going to pour me some. Also, in... <laughs> yes, tell them. Um, so, not only are we drinking this out of our Bending Branch logo glasses, but I am wearing one of the Bending Branch shirts right now. <laughs> it yes. says, to not tonight, honey. And I love it so much. Um, yes, we definitely walked away with some Bending Branch swag. Um, or I mean, we went to gift shop afterwards. We, we were like, "We'll take that wine. We'll take that wine. We'll have that." Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, cheers. Oh, no. oh that's so good. It's so fruity. Mm. Yep. In in a, I love it. Okay, cheers. Cheers. I know we're doing this wine tasting like twice, but you guys, this wine is so good. It is so good, and we're gonna want. Wine while we jump into our cases. Yes, well, I um, guess so. Uh, which, with... yeah, do we want to just we we had the wine portion. The we had an amazing time at Bending Branch. Had a great time talking to Jen. But now we should jump into the crime portion. Yes, let's do it. So for this episode, 
we wanted to take, we, I, wanted to take <laughs> things a little bit different. We've had some really heavy episodes. Oh, yeah. And Lately, even, it's just been intense after intense after intense. And even our Survivor episodes are super intense. Like, they're, they do have a happy ending because the person survives, but... Y'all. Doesn't mean they didn't go through absolute hell on earth. Sometimes, plus some. sometimes those stories are so much harder to do than others. So for this one, we're going to make it a little lighter, but keep it interesting. I have a really interesting story. Oh, that, yeah. Or a really interesting crime. So our topic today is true crime, non-murder. Yes. So keeping it in the crime family... I oh, guess yeah. kind of taking a little bit of the blood out, which is a good thing sometimes. And, uh, y'all, some of these cases that I know mine I've wanted to do for a while, but it doesn't really, it didn't fit previously because it's not a murder. And that's what m- most of our episodes are. Yeah. Um, and it didn't really fit with the survivor angle. I mean, it, it does, but it, you, you'll see what way. I mean when I get to it. Well, and mine was one that is, a case that is extremely well known and mm-hmm. one that I've always been so very interested in. So this was the perfect episode to to use that. Yeah. So it's like we both got to pull cases out of our pocket that we've been hanging on to for a while. Absolutely. So with that, Brittany, let's jump into yours. Yes, I am excited to get into my case. Do it. The one I am doing is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Theft. Okay, so... I have watched a, it was one of the BuzzFeed Unsolved videos. I love those. And so that's what I know of this case, but it's been like a year or two. So I don't really remember. So I'm excited. And I'm excited to get your perspective because you live in the arts world. I do. Um, arts, art, his, arts history. <laughs> art history is my background. Um, I guess really far back considering now that's not what I'm doing. But That'd be fair. I definitely have a passion for it. And that's why this is, like I said, this is a case that I've known about for an extremely long time, studied it, and really want to do. So I used quite a few sources for this one. I used the, um, the Gardner Museum website, The Guardian, WBUR, The New York Times, mm-hmm. The Boston Globe, and Wikipedia. This case is the single largest property theft in the world. Oh. So more was stolen at this point in time than anywhere else ever, which is why this case is so huge, like the value of what was stolen. I forget just how much things are worth, like in museums and shit. Yeah. Like, it just blows my mind. You're like, this piece of art is worth $100 million. And I'm like, oh... My God, I, I know. Will never see that amount of money in my entire life. It's insane, and it's all about what someone is willing to pay for it that creates the value. Like if you really think about, it, I mean, that's not all it's about. I mean, but yeah, that's because how... to me, a Rembrandt painting would be worth like a thousand, because I probably wouldn't spend more than that on it because I don't have more than that to spend. <laughs> but I mean, well, like I'm saying, it's worth it, and it's it's. Well, and you can work it. You can put that thing down, flip it, and reverse it. It's a year flipping it, fam, yeah. (laughs) No, like, it's worth a lot of money because it's very historical. It's like the the whole history 
of of art and how there were all these different periods and wh- how it progressed, etc. But when it comes to like when things are auctioned and whatnot, modern day art, it's like what people are willing to pay for, yeah. essentially. Um, and there's a lot of other ways they put value on it. I'm not an appraiser. I did take an appraisal class. Oh. But so I want to start with a little bit of a background of who Isabella Stewart Gardner is and what this museum was and why she had all of these pieces. Okay. So she was born in New York City on April 14th, 1840. Oh, dang. To a very well-to-do family. And she was privately educated in New York as well as abroad. When she was living in Paris, one of her schoolmates, Julia Gardner, introduced Isabella to her brother, John Jack Lowell Gardner Jr. Wow, that's a name. It's a name. Um, In 1860, a few days right before her 20th birthday, the two of them got married in New York. Jesus, they they were children. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in this day, though, that was probably getting married late. Um, okay, fair. Um, but then they moved to his hometown of Boston. In 1863, the Gardners had a son, John Lowell Gardner III. They called him Jackie. However, when he was just two years old, he died from pneumonia. Mm. Isabella was very just, she couldn't get out of a funk. She was extremely depressed having lost her child. So four years later, with the advice of her doctor, Jack and Isabella took a trip to Northern Europe and Russia And this is when she started to realize that travel was something that she really loved. Oh, same. It was, I know, right? (laughs) It's just like, once you get a taste of it, it's all you ever want to do. I know. I was counting, and I think I have five trips set up for next year already, and I'm like, okay. All right, how am I going to pay for this? You'll figure it out. It's fun, yeah. Because money always returns, but the time to go on a trip, Mm -hmm. you may only have one opportunity. That's true. You take advantage then, of that. Well, and this is just, this is totally non-sponsored, but some of the deals on the, like, Groupon's getaways or, I think it's getaways still. Yeah. Y'all, we saw this one a couple days ago, almost put on my credit card, because it was $900, and it was, like, seven days, six nights, flight included, tours and stuff included, to Greece, so from oh, like yeah. five different airports in the US. I just US, still cannot believe that. You fly into Athens, you spend two or three days, you tour like the Parthenon, the Temple of Athena, you take a boat to Santorini, spend a couple of nights there, do some stuff there, and then I think you take a boat or a plane to Mykonos, spend a little bit there, then you head back to Athens and fly back for $900, all of that included. Yeah, it's just insane. And, because flying to Greece is really expensive. Yeah. So, like, even not having just everything finding included a, was crazy. a round trip to Greece for under 900 is difficult in itself, and that's it just is. the flight. It is. But, so I'm just saying, if y'all are interested in traveling and want to do it on a budget, check it out. Check them out for sure. Also, hostels aren't that scary. Just stay at them. No. And I mean, as long as you look it up online, look at the reviews. Like, if you don't stay at one that has, like, a one-star review and people are like, there's murderers in the ceiling. But if you <laughs> say, don't stay anywhere where that's one of the reviews, unless it's a haunted house. I mean, I don't, don't really do it know anyway. if you want to stay there either. But, um, but no, hostels are fun. You can meet some great people there. You really can. And sometimes you can hide a bottle of sangria and then just drink it on your bed alone. It's fine. Did you do that in Barcelona? I did. You My the, the the person I was traveling with, she fell asleep, and I was awake, and I was like, "Well, I don't really want to wander Barcelona at one a.m., so I'm gonna sit in bed and drink sangria." Hey, you know what? 
I think it sounds wonderful. It really was, except there was no AC. But the, anyways, <laughs> so we like to travel. And, and so, so did, she. did Isabella. She started keeping elaborate journals of her visits, was writing everything down. And in 1978, so like 10 years later, after they've been doing all of this traveling, she attended the readings of Charles Eliot Norton, who was the first art history professor at Harvard. And he wow. invited her to join the Dante Society. And Sounds creepy. Well, I think it's just, I, to be completely honest, I didn't look it up to see what it was because I could see myself going down a huge rabbit hole. But mm -hmm. I'm assuming it's just a society of all these people who are like art and book collectors because she started collecting rare books and manuscripts and a lot of them were the early editions of Dante's books. Oh. And um, Norton was like encouraging her and helping her find these. So Isabella and Jack also visited Palazzo Barbaro, which was a Venetian palace, um, and this became this major source of inspiration for her in the creation of the museum that I'm getting to right now. Oh, is it like built based off the palace? It's built based off of a lot of different things. Ooh. So after years of collecting on a small personal scale, in 1891, Isabella inherited $1.75 million, which in today's money is $45 million. Jesus. <laughs> in case you needed to, like, know how much inflation has gone up. Uh, but this was from her father upon his death. And this is when she started collecting on a much larger level. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Isabella and Jack decided their ambitions as collectors required a lot more space than they had in their residence. And this is when they first started thinking about oh my, a museum. Oh, my God. These are the people who... You, like, go to their house for dinner, and they're like, oh, yes, this is an original Matisse above the above the table. Oh, that, yes. That's uh, one of Monk, Edward Monk's uh, greatest works. That's yes, actually it's, it's the, in my bathroom. It's the, the precursor to the scream. They call it... Um, the yell. The shout. Oh, mm, okay. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she's, she's that person. <laughs> she's who you're like, that person. Oh, my God. Can I just use your sink? And she's like, yes, but watch out for the authentic Rembrandt painting that's right next to the sink. And you're like, okay, I won't splash it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say Rembrandt like that's a joke. It's not, oh, by God. the way. Um, so <laughs> they started getting this idea for a museum. And at first they considered just expanding their current home, combining two houses. However, as the collection began to grow, Jack felt that it'd be more sensible just to buy land and build a new building completely for a museum with apartments at the top for them to live in. Oh, that sounds so fun. I know, doesn't it? Like, it I would love so to live cool. in an apartment above a, a nice museum. That you also own and that has all your stuff. So it's like essentially it's, it's your house. Room. <laughs> yes. Um, which I will say, I have been to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Oh, I didn't know you it had. It is amazing. It's so amazing. Y'all should go online and um, look around all of these different rooms. I'm trying to remember... Do you know if Google still has, like, the virtual museum tour thing? Yeah. Do that. I think this museum's on there. But it's literally decorated exactly the same as it was when she passed away. Because, uh, spoiler alert, she has passed away. She was born in 1840. <laughs> I kind I hoped so, actually. Like, actually, she's 175 today. Yeah. 178 is what she would be, which is horrifying. It, that would be horrifying. But 
it's still decorated exactly as it was when she still lived there. She was very particular about how things looked. And apparently during the construction of it, she was always there and very particular. And a lot of things had to be rebuilt. Um, (laughs) But... I mean, hey, if you're paying for it, then okay. Then you want it to be exactly what you want. Um, But I highly, highly recommend going to this museum if you're in the Boston area. Do you remember the... Okay, so there is a museum in Oklahoma City... And when I was a child, they always had a commercial that was, like, sweeping camera view, like, through the halls. And I think it played that Anya song, that, who can sweep on the road? Or it sounded something I like that. Don't Do you... know if they did that. But are you, you asking if I remember this? Yes, and obviously you do not. No, but unless it's the sweeping through like the European and American art gallery with the red walls. Yeah. Yeah, I know that shot. Okay. Do also, you know what museum that was for? Yeah, the Oklahoma City Museum of Art. Oh, really? Yeah, it's where I worked. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I worked there too. Oh, yeah, I forget. <laughs> I always forget that you worked there. Yeah, for a summer in the gift shop. Mm. Good times, though. That was fun. Great Anyway, times. Um, well, whenever I think museums, that that commercial is just playing on a loop in the back of my head. I'm going to have Inya stuck in my head now <laughs> for, like, Sorry. the entire time I'm telling this story. Um, so, in the summer of 1879, Isabella and Jack traveled through Venice, Florence, and Rome, and they were gathering a lot of architectural fragments for their gallery. Like, they're mm-hmm. just buying a ton of stuff. They purchased columns, windows, doorways, as well as reliefs, capitals, and statues from Roman, Byzantine, Gothic, and Renaissance periods. So, oh, literally. Oh my god, I want to go to this museum. Oh, you would love it. I'm telling you, when I'm done, you have to look up photos. Um, I'm going to put some on our Instagram for sure. I already have a couple that I've picked out. That is one. Like, two of the big cities in, I think the second one counts as in Europe, that I want to visit so bad are Rome and Istanbul. Yeah. And just see all of the the old Roman and Byzantine uh, art and architecture and Ugh, because I don't know if y'all know this about me. I don't know if I mentioned it before. I'm, like, a gigantic hoe for architecture. I know you are. Ugh, love me some Art Deco. Oh, my gosh. My fave. And then I just pretend the 60s didn't exist. So suddenly, in 1898, Jack passes away. Mm. And so Isabella is left to carry out her dream on her own. And she does. In 1899, she buys the land... She starts getting this all in order. The construction begins and it's completed in 1901. Mm-hmm. With all of the different things that she had going on, all the Roman, Byzantine, Romanesque, Gothic, Renaissance, all these elements, it could have been a real mess. Yeah. But instead it was like beautiful, very harmonious, and you could mm. tell she knew what she was doing with the pieces mm. that she had. She moved to the private fourth floor living quarters and devoted herself to personally arranging all of the artwork in the galleries of the other three floors. So in 1902 is when she installed everything from paintings, sculptures, tapestries, furniture, manuscripts, rare books, decorative arts, like literally everything. So everything in there is, is like a piece of her collection. Yeah. And she would continue to acquire more works and change the installations for the rest of her life. Wow. But once she did pass away, they, they stopped changing it. Yeah. As much as, like, the museum is gorgeous with all of the different artworks, one thing that is so huge about the experience of going is the courtyard. 
And that's where some of these like stonework arches and columns and walls create this just beautiful oasis. Very uh-huh. Romanesque, very inspired by, by a Roman atrium. Yeah. And so outdoors uncovered all the beautiful things. Now that you know why this museum is so spectacular and all of the treasures that it holds, mm-hmm. now I'm going to get into the theft. I get, oh, okay. I was like, when are we getting to the... Right now. It's okay. happening right now. So after midnight on March 18th, 1990, a vehicle pulled up near the side entrance of the museum. And after sitting in the car for about an hour... Making sure the coast was clear, no one's coming up. At 1.24 a.m., two men in, in police uniforms pushed the museum buzzer and stated to a man named Richard Abath, who was the security guard on duty, that they were responding to a late-night disturbance in the courtyard and they requested to be let in. So Abath broke protocol and allowed the two men to come through the employee entrance because he really didn't know if the rule applied to police officers when he thought these were police officers. I mean, so come that's on in. absolutely fair. Yeah, and when the intruders arrived at the main security desk, one of them told Abath that he looked familiar and that there was a default warrant out for his arrest. Abath stepped out from behind the desk where the only alarm button to alert police could be accessed. He was quickly asked for his ID, ordered to face the wall, and then handcuffed. Abath mm. believed that this awkward arrest was just a misunderstanding until he realized that he had not been frisked before being cuffed. And one of the officers was wearing a mustache made of wax. What? A second security guard. So he, like, starts to notice, like, things are not so great. Is he not the brightest bulb? I don't know. Okay. I really don't know. Um, I feel like you could sell a wax mustache from afar, but okay. Hey, uh, it could have been like wax little hairs or something. I mean, uh, dude, I don't okay. know. Okay. Couldn't even tell you. Uh, the second security guard arrived just a few minutes later and was also handcuffed. And he asked the intruders why he was being arrested. Because, again, yeah. he's, they are still thinking they're police. That's when the thieves explained that they were not being arrested, but this was a robbery. They took the guards down to the museum's basement, handcuffed them to pipes, mm-hmm. wrapped duct tape around their hands, feet, and heads. That's horrifying. Yeah. Just 81 minutes later, the thieves departed with 13 different artworks from the museum. Dang. These works were world from world-renowned artists such as Rembrandt, Vermeer, Manet, Degas, they took, um, one of the big pieces they, they took was Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was his only known seascape that he ever did, and Vermeer's The Concert. All 13 of these pieces together are worth 500 million. 500 million? 500 million. Okay, I can understand why it was the biggest theft ever. Yes, yeah. and, and it remains the biggest unsolved art theft in world history. Oh, my God. Like, largest property theft, also largest art theft. Yeah. God. Unfortunately, this one's topping all the charts. So, the museum was equipped with motion detectors, so the thieves' movements were recorded. The best-known works of art were taken from the Dutch room. Mm -hmm. This is going to hurt for y'all who are art history people like I am. They cut Rembrandt's Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee from the frame. Uh. And a lady and gentleman in black removed Ramirez the concert and 
Flink's landscape with an obelisk from the frames. So, like, they're touching the art. They're fucking cutting it out of the frames. Like, they're not... They're clearly not professional artists. Yeah. The like, horrible... they're just destroying this stuff. Well, uh, one of the horrible things about this is this happened in 90. You said it's unsolved. I mean, unless they sold them to people who's going to take care of them, these works are probably ruined. Yeah. Like... If they're even... They even still exist anymore. Yeah. Um, some other things that they took, an ancient Chinese bronze goo, G-U, or beaker from a table. They took a small self-portrait etching by Rembrandt um, from the side of a chest. So that was all in the Dutch room. Then in the short gallery on the same floor as the Dutch room, five Degas paintings and a bronze eagle finel were stolen. Manet's chaise tortoni. Manet's. Mayo. Not, it's not... I know. Monet, it's mayonnaise. No, I know. But it just sounded like said mayonnaise. <laughs> mayonnaise. Like mayo. <laughs> that sounds like... <laughs> mayonnaise. <laughs> See? <laughs> mayonnaise. Chez Tortoni was taken from the Blue Room, and the thieves departed at 2.45 a.m. after making two separate trips to their car with the artwork. The mm. guards remained handcuffed in the basement until the police arrived at 8.15 that morning. Oh. The next morning. So they were tied up for a very long time before anyone alerted uh, the yeah. police that something was going on. So the FBI quickly took control of this case because it, it was under the grounds that the artwork would likely be taken across state lines. So yeah. it was not just a Massachusetts crime. They conducted hundreds of interviews stretching across the world, including or er, and involving like the Scotland Yard, Japanese and French authorities, private investigators, museum directors, art dealers, just anyone and everyone. Yeah. Um, the FBI believes that the thieves were members of a criminal organization based in the Mid-Atlantic in New England, and that the stolen paintings were moved through Connecticut and the Philadelphia area in the years just following the theft. Mm. Some of the art may have been offered for sale in Philadelphia in the early 2000s, which includes um, Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, the Christ and Storm. Yeah. The one with the really long title that I've said like three times yeah. now. Um However, their knowledge of what happened to the works after this attempted sale is very limited. Mm. The FBI stated that it believed it knew the identity of the thieves in 2013, but in 2015 announced that they were now deceased and they have declined to identify these individuals. No single motive or pattern has emerged through all of the pages of evidence and reporting and investigating that has been gathered, so no one knows why. And... The selection of works puzzles experts because there were more valuable artworks available in the museum. So, again, this is just showing that these guys were clearly not art theft experts. So one of the FBI's lead agents that was assigned to this case, Jeffrey J. Kelly, he also finds it difficult to understand this different assortment because essentially the thieves had all the time in the world in the museum. They could have taken anything they wanted, and they left a lot of the really high-priced paintings. For example, when they got the Fennel, they passed by two Raphaels and a Botticelli painting. There was a Titian piece, which is one of the museum's most well-known and valuable pieces, and it was not stolen. And again, with their 
very brutish ways of removing these from the frames, cutting them. Uh, they were amateur criminals. They were not experts. Yeah. And some investigators believed that the works were destroyed, which is why they have not reappeared. Oh. Um, in 1994, the museum director, Ann Hawley, received a letter that promised the return of the pieces for $2.6 million. What the museum had to do was get the Boston Globe to publish a coded message in a business story. The message was published, but nothing ever happened. Oh. Another, you know, lead was one night in 1997, a Boston Herald reporter, Tim Mashberg, was driven to a warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn, by William Youngsworth, who was a career criminal and associate of New England art thief Miles Connor Jr., to see what he said was the storm on the Sea of Galilee. So this guy's like, come out to my warehouse. I've got this painting. Okay. So Mashberg had been investigating the theft and was briefly allowed to view the painting with a flashlight. And he was given a vial of paint chips for authenticity. Be like, here, test these. This is the real thing. But they were later confirmed to be um, fragments of Dutch 17th century origin. Not from the stolen painting, though. Oh. So they weren't the same paint pigments. It was never concretely determined to be real or fake. And the FBI quit dealing with Youngsworth because they were not making any progress. And the painting has since disappeared. So we don't know if that was actually it or not. Mm. On August 6, 2015, so moving much further into the future to the recent years, police released a video from the night before the theft took place, and it's believed to show like a dry run of the robbery. There are two men that appear on the tape. One remains identified, and the other one has been confirmed as Richard Abath, who, if you remember, was the security guard who was on duty that night. Yeah. Oh. So... This, this video appears to show a bath buzzing in the unidentified men into the museum a couple of times within two minutes. The men stayed for about three minutes in the lobby, then they returned to the car and drove off. So police are saying that this video very much opens up new lines of investigation and where, you know, is a bath a potential collaborator? Was he yeah. in on this? Did he let them in because he was part of it? Yeah. Unfortunately... Previously, the guards had been interviewed and they were deemed too unimaginative to have pulled off the heist. But that doesn't mean they were not collaborators. I know. Yeah, they weren't the mastermind. Cool. But doesn't mean they couldn't be influenced. Exactly. In December 2015, so that same year, Mm -hmm. FBI agents searched East Boston's Suffolk Downs horse racing track. Sorry, that was a huge mouthful of words. Um, acting on a tip that they got about hearing that the stolen artwork was there. Okay. So that's apparently weird. some rumors went around in the 90s and they just resurfaced that that's what they the artwork put, was. like Christ on the Sea of Galilee in it's the just break like room. In the stable. Like, <laughs> not like with the horses. Yeah, you know, it's fine. Um, so parts of the stables that had been closed since the 90s and two safes, which uh, the FBI investigators drilled open were searched and there was nothing there in june 2017 so just last year the boston globe reported that some of the crime scene evidence collected by the fbi was missing even after an exhaustive search 
They were unable to locate handcuffs and duct tape that were used to immobilize the security guards. Oh, because that could have DNA. Yep. It could have had DNA. And they cannot find those pieces of evidence. Oh. They have disappeared. You know what my theory is? What? Amelia Earhart did it. She does all these things. She does. So, but do you want to hear what the actual theories are? I mean, I guess. It's that not one, going to be right. That one wasn't one of them. That well, it I, just wasn't one of the up. ones that you found. It's, right, it's that's what there. I just said that I looked yeah. up. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, one of the theories states that Boston gangster Bobby Donati may have been involved in the heist. Uh, and this was with a, a man I mentioned earlier, Miles J. Connor Jr., mm-hmm. who was the, the, the New art England thief, art thief. Yeah. He was in prison at the time of the robbery and stated that he and associate Bobby Donati eyed the museum in the 1980s and that Donati like, oversaw the operation. Shortly before the robbery, Donati was seen at a nightclub with a stack of police uniforms and it's a weird thing to bring a nightclub. It is, unless you are handing them out to people so they could dress up as cops. I mean, you could do that in a less public place, but okay. Eh, but it's the nightclub and it's the fucking mob. Like, come on. Okay, that's fair. Like, that's their hangout, right? That's how I don't mobs know. work. I don't, I don't know. I don't either. Donati worked under Boston crime boss Vincent Ferreira and visited him in prison in the early 90s. And when Ferreira asked about the robbery, Donati said he buried the stuff and would find a way to negotiate his release. Oh. So, um, unfortunately, Donati was murdered in 1991 as a result of some ongoing gang wars. Oh, shit. So it he could have stolen it, buried it, and now he's dead. No one knows where it is. It will never be found. Yep, that's one of the theories. That's oh, exactly God. That's exactly it. So another one has to do with another gangster, this time from Hartford, Connecticut, Robert Bobby the Cook Gentile. Okay. He's been suggested on multiple occasions as knowing the location of the artwork. In May 2012, FBI agents searched his home in Manchester, Connecticut, but they didn't find any stolen works. Despite searching his preferred hiding spot beneath a false floor with the help of his son, so, like, clearly this guy knew how to hide things. He had a fake floor. Oh, uh, yeah. In the basement, they found a sheet of paper listing what each stolen piece might draw on the black market. Oh. So, there was that interesting piece of evidence. In January 2006, the FBI contrived gun charges against Gentile to force him to reveal the location of the missing works. And during the hearing, a federal prosecutor revealed significant evidence tying Gentile to the crime. The prosecutor stated that Gentile and his partner, Robert Garanti, attempted to use the return of two of the stolen pieces to reduce a prison sentence for one of their other associates. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar to some of the stuff I said in the first series where it's like mob gangsters helping out each other. And Garanti's wife told investigators in early 2015 that her husband once had possession of some of the art and gave two paintings to Gentile before Guarantee died of cancer in 2004. Oh, my God. Also, while in federal prison during 2013 to 2014, Gentile told at least three different people that he had knowledge of the stolen art. So they're just talking for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Talking, supposedly trading off works. Oh, my God. And in 2015, Gentile submitted a lie detector test denying advanced knowledge of the heist or ever possessing any of the paintings. So he's like, no, I 
I don't know anything about it. I don't own any of them. Yeah, lie detector tests don't mean shit, so... Well, the results show, showed a 0.1% chance that he was truthful. He was very much lying. Oh, okay. Like, because he was saying, no, I don't know anything about it. And there was a 0.1% chance that that is true. Oh, okay. <laughs> According to the lie detector yeah. test that, it, it, you're right, is not They accurate, don't mean anything, but... But still. Yeah. And he submitted it himself. If you fail it that bad... Oh, like they made him take it. And stuff. Yeah. I thought you meant like he took it of his own will and sent it to them of like, here, here's my lie detector test. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> See what happens. Anyway, yeah. So he failed it miserably. And according to Gentile's lawyer, federal agents were convinced that he had the stolen works. Yeah. His home was searched again by the FBI in 2016, even though his lawyer insists that if Gentile had stolen the artwork or had knowledge of its whereabouts, he would have turned it in for the reward money a long time ago. No, a I don't. Very good point. But I don't think he would. I don't think if he was willing it's to turn it in for the chase. Exactly. I yeah. think it, if he was willing to just, like, for the reward money, he wouldn't have stolen it. Like, I don't know. Yeah. In 2017, Gentile was scheduled to be sentenced for a separate weapons charge in Connecticut. So, like, he's in jail for something else. Yeah. In 1997, the museum raised the amount they were giving for the reward, which I'll get into more details in that in just a moment. But this was when Miles J. Connor Jr. pops up again. He said he could locate the missing artworks in exchange for legal immunity. And authorities rejected his offer. They were like, no, dude, no. Um, Connor now believes that the gardener's works have passed into other unknown hands. And he said, you know, I was probably told, but I don't remember. And he blamed his heart attack that supposedly affected his memory. Oh, my God. Another Boston area gangster, Louis Royce, claims he still um, is owed 15% of the profit for devising the plan for the two fake policemen to request access to the museum that night. So he's still saying he deserves his part. Yeah. And then um, Arthur Brand, a Dutch investigator and art advisor who's based in Amsterdam, claims that the art is in Ireland. So, wow. The point of all of that is we have no idea where this art is. Today, the effort continues. And if you go to the museum, the empty frames still hang in all of the rooms where the artwork oh. is supposed to be. And as of, I think it was last year, there's actually an app that you can use to virtually, like, place the paintings in their frames at mm. the museum. So you can see what it would have looked like in the room. Um, but the return of the work remains a top priority. The frames are there to show that, you know, there's still hope for their return. Mm. The museum continues to actively investigate the theft and is working with the FBI. There's security chief, Anthony Amor, who's been working full-time on the investigation for the last 12 years, mm -hmm. says that they continue to get calls regularly and that the problem is not the volume, it's the quality. You know, yeah. a lot of people have different theories and he doesn't want theories, he wants facts. Yeah, that's fair. Totally fair. So the museum first offered a reward of $1 million dollars. But it was later increased to $5 million in 1997. And the reward is for information that leads directly to the recovery of all 13 items in good condition. However, in May 2017, the, this reward was doubled to $10 million mm. with an expiration date set on midnight, um, set for midnight on December 31st of that year. 
but they extended it into 2018 because they kept getting an outpouring of tips from the public, which I mean, like, yeah, of course you are. You made the reward $10 million. Yeah. But if you read the criteria of that, that would be very difficult to get. Yeah. Because you would have to get all 13 paint, like your, your piece of evidence would have to get all of them back in good condition. Yeah. Which like we've talked about is probably feel like that's near impossible. Yeah. Unless the part, like they stole it. And gave it to someone who knows how to preserve art and stuff like that. Which I feel like is just so unlikely. No. But federal authorities have stated that they will not charge anyone who voluntarily turns in the artwork. So if you bring it back, you are not charged. But if you are caught knowingly in possession of any of these stolen items, then you're going to be prosecuted. Yeah. Which, duh. So think Um, of our listeners, if you have it, go turn it in. Go turn it in. Just let them know. I will say, though, the thieves cannot uh, face charges because of the five-year statute of limitations, which has obviously expired. Yeah. So the thieves themselves are... They're good. Yeah, but for... Probably for stealing. But, like, he used to be sure they charged for, like, them. possession or... Yeah. Well, if they still had them. I'm sure oh, they don't. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's no way they still have them. No. They stole them and got rid of them. Yeah. In September of this year... Uh, there was a podcast that was created by the Boston Globe and WBUR, and it's called Last Scene. I really want to listen to it, but it just goes through, like, what happened, the theories. Uh, mm. It's definitely on my podcast listening list next. And last, I just want to say, if anyone does have any information, please contact Director of Security Anthony Amore. I've got the phone number. It's 617 one four, or email them at theft at gardnermuseum.org. Oh God, that's an email address. <laughs> it's a, yes, it is. But that is this insane theft that literally, I'm I'm sure most people have heard of at least mm-hmm. the existence of this happening. But the fact that, and and I will say the the artwork's being worth five hundred million. I don't know what year that figure was determined. It could very well be a lot more. So my theory, Amelia Earhart partnered with Walt Disney. They stole it. And the artwork is in a a hidden wall in a uh, Sunoco bathroom, like a Sunoco gas station bathroom, uh, 30 miles outside of Birmingham, Alabama. And is it next to the freezer where Walt Disney's body is kept at that Sunoco? Yes. Well, I mean, next to. It's, like, a little bit. It's, like, around the corner in the gas station, but more or less, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that makes That's, sense. Yeah. I I think there is nothing that could prove that theory false. Yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, so, um, as Super Art History Nerd, this breaks my heart just as much as, gosh, it was a couple years ago when there were some artworks that were found that had been burned um, in an attic or something like that. I'm probably piecing things together, but it was a horrifying memory that I don't like to keep. But, yeah, it's just hard when pieces of of history and just, I don't know, like, why were these stolen? Like, why? Why did you sell them to not eat, or why did you steal them to not even sell them? Yeah. Unless it was, like... Like, stolen, or sold, but, like, underhand, like, secret, yeah. Which, I mean, obviously that's how it would be, but I guess I mean, super, yeah, super secret. Day. Super secret, so much to where, with all the investigations that have been done, there are still so many theories as to mm. who did it and where it is and what happened to it. Yeah. But yeah, it's always just so crazy to think about how two people did that. 
two people stole all of that yeah. in just like 81 minutes, a little over an hour. Bang. So, um, yeah, that's insane. Is the museum in like downtown Boston or? I'm not sure exactly where in Boston it's located. I w- I don't know Boston well enough to know what is considered downtown Boston. Okay, fair. But yes, it's in Boston. Okay. Um, I believe it's by the college, but that may have been the other museum. I went to a lot of museums while I was there. Fair. So I was there for a weekend and um did museums. Did okay. museums. All right. Well, what case do you have? So, I have one that is I think also fairly well known. Yeah. And it's the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. You know, I don't really know a lot about this one. So I first heard about this one a couple years ago from a drunk history video on Comedy oh, Central. Really? Yeah. And it it's one where uh Kristen Wig plays Patty Hearst in yeah. the reenactment thing. And it was just so fascinating. Really? So that that was my first exposure to it, and then I really enjoyed researching it for this case because I learned a lot more. Did, okay, well, I'm really excited to learn about it because I know just literally high level. I yeah. don't know any details. So the sources I used were Wikipedia, Crime Museum, and History. Which sounds like somewhere we should go. It really does. Um, I don't know where it is, but... We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Put it on the list. Our travel list. Put it on our travel list. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. So, Patty Hearst was born in San Francisco and was the third of five daughters of Randolph Apperson Hearst Mm -hmm. and Catherine Wood Campbell. So, Randolph Hearst's dad, William Randolph Hearst, was an American businessman, politician, and newspaper publisher who built the nation's largest newspaper chain and media company, Hearst Communications. Yeah, so, I think I actually knew that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of Hearst Communications, but it, reading about it, I'm shocked I didn't. Yeah. Because today it owns newspapers and magazines such as Cosmo, Marie Claire, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Houston Chronicle, and it has huge huh. stakes in TV channels like A&E and ESPN. Oh my gosh. So she was the heiress to a family fortune that is now worth over $32 billion. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she... That is an unimaginable amount of money. Uh, yeah. I said was, is an heiress. She's still alive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, $32 billion is what that company is worth. Oh my gosh. I know. So on February 4th of 1974, a group of men and women knocked on 19-year-old Patty Hearst's apartment door and proceeded to kidnap her. Mm-hmm. Her fiancé, Stephen Weed, was beaten and tied up <gasps> along oh with gosh. a neighbor who had tried to help. Yeah. Witnesses reported seeing a struggling Hearst being carried away blindfolded, and she was put in the trunk of a car. Wow. And neighbors that came out onto the street to like see what was going on or to help out were forced to take cover after the kidnappers started firing their guns to cover the escape. Oh my gosh. So we went such different angles on this topic. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. So the group that kidnapped Patty was a radical group of domestic terrorists that were known as the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA. Okay. So this group, which was led by Donald DeFreeze, was on a mission to destroy the capitalist state. Okay. 
and they strategically kidnapped Patty because she was part of a wealthy, powerful family and knew that by kidnapping her, they would get a lot of attention and press. Well, yeah. I mean, you kidnap someone who has lots of money. Yes. I mean, yeah. Or like, it, I mean, someone who has a lot of money's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause this would be equivalent today to like them kidnapping someone like Paris Hilton. Yeah. Like yeah. just a huge, very well-known heiress. Yeah. Makes sense. I, it's unfortunately makes you a target mm-hmm. when you're in that situation. Yeah. The situation of, I don't know, being in a very wealthy family. Yeah. <laughs> so three days later, the Symbionese Liberation Army um, announced in a letter to a Berkeley radio station that they were holding Hearst as a prisoner of war. And four days after that, oh my gosh, the SLA demanded that the Hearst family give $70 in food to every needy person from Santa Rosa to Los Angeles. Whoa. That was their demand. Once that was done, the negotiation for uh, Patty's return would begin. Okay. Randolph Hearst hesitantly gave away about $2 million worth of food. Yeah. The SLA called that inadequate and asked for $6 million more. They were like, no, 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 no. You're, you obviously cannot feed that many people on $2 million, $6 million more. Oh, my gosh. The Hearst Corporation said it would donate that additional $6 million if she was released unharmed. Yeah. They did not release her then. Like, they did not agree to those terms. Ugh. So the SLA was formed through contacts that were made by a study group uh, coordinated by a University of California Berkeley professor. So study group is formed and eventually they become this domestic terrorist group. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Just like a group of from kids. From a study group in college. Yeah. No, from Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Okay. I did not know that because this seemed so much more underground than a study group well that's how it started but yeah well and it became i know i'm just i just would have never thought that was the origin oh yeah so the purpose of the sla they're like their their thing their ideals yeah was the protection of black inmates okay which okay yeah over time they became increasingly radicalized and they eventually viewed all black convicts as Uh, heroic prisoners and victims of racism. So after Patty's disappearance, the the SLA kept her in the group headquarters blindfolded for two months. Oh my god, can you even see after being blindfolded for that long? I I mean, she is not blind, so yes, but I can imagine there had to be some kind of adjustment period. Yes. So in April, two months after she was kidnapped. The situation changed dramatically when a surveillance camera took a photo of Patty participating in an armed robbery of a San Francisco bank. I wonder I wonder how that happened. So we'll get into that. Okay, yeah. okay. Like how there was this flip. Mm-hmm. So she was also spotted during a robbery at a Los Angeles store. During the time that Patty was held hostage, uh, she... And these are this is a statement she made uh, after um, everything. But she said that the SLA also began to brainwash her, uh, set on turning her into an accomplice for their revolution and their terrorist goals. Right. 
She said she was abused both physically and psychologically and later claimed she was isolated to a point she felt no one would rescue her. Oh my gosh. So no one's going to rescue her. She should become a part of them. Yeah. Yeah. Additionally, Patty claimed that she was constantly exposed to the group's radical beliefs and was forced to record messages that would hurt her loved ones. Oh no. These, this brainwashing appeared to be taking effect after the SLA released a tape in which Patty, under the new name Tania, claimed... Oh, they gave her a new name? She gave herself a new name. Oh. Yeah. Tania. Tania. Interesting. Um, I've never heard that name. She claimed that she joined the SLA's fight. Like, she was there willingly now. Yeah. And a few days after the release of the tape... She was spotted taking part in the robbery in San Francisco and aiding their cause. Wow. Another tape that was released shortly after the robbery featured Patty explaining that the group members were her comrades and that their criminal action was necessary to support the gang's plans for revolution. Hmm. She called her family offensive names and denied that she was being brainwashed and dismissed that as a ridiculous idea, reiterating that she was a soldier of the People's Army. Oh my gosh. So she just very brainwashed. Yeah. Very like, no, I'm here because I want to be here. Exactly. I support everything they're doing. Yeah. So despite Patty's insistence that she was not brainwashed and that she was making the choice to support the SLA in her own free will, many of the people that were close to her, as well as those that were, like, following her case, were unconvinced. Uh, Her behavior was radically different from how she was before the kidnapping. So they knew something was They were like, no, 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 no. This is not... That's not Patty. Patty didn't just go ahead and join this. Yeah. She has clearly been brainwashed regardless of what she says. Well, and I feel like if you're brainwashed, well, one of the first things they're going to tell you to say is that you're not brainwashed. Like, yeah. Of course. So, no, I don't believe her one bit. Right. Yeah. No, they're like, we're not falling for this. Nope. So, at this point in the case, the FBI had launched one of the most massive agent-intensive searches in its entire history to find her and to stop the SLA. Wow. Also... Do you think... Part of that had to do with the fact that there was a lot of money in this family. Oh, absolutely. 100% absolutely. Yeah. If this was someone who came from a lower income family, there would not have been this kind of resources allocated. Right. Well, and also because of, I would think because of the amount of money the family had and their people knew who they were. Yeah. Therefore, everyone knew this was happening. And if yeah. the FBI and everyone didn't do a lot Mm -hmm. there'd be a lot of ridicule i'm sure absolutely so um so on may 16th of 1974 uh the sla members were caught selling ammunition at a local store in la Uh and the following day on may 17th los angeles police raided the sla's secret headquarters oh so they found it patty was nowhere to be found Uh uh-oh They found the headquarters. They did not find Patty. They didn't find her. So earlier that day, 
a store manager at a Mel's Sporting Goods in Inglewood, California, which is in the L.A. area, observed a minor spur-of-the-moment theft by SLA members William and Emily Harris while Hearst was waiting across the street in a van. So they, like, shoplifted some stuff, and the store manager's like, the fuck? Yeah. So... With a female employee, this manager followed the Harrises out and confronted them. Mm-hmm. During the ensuing scuffle, one of William Harris's wrists was restrained and his pistol fell out of his waistband. Patty, who had been taught how to use guns by her dad, yeah. discharged the entire magazine of the gun into the overhead storefront. Oh my gosh. So she's shooting around trying to scare the people the manager dives behind a light post he's like nope yeah and when he tried to shoot back with the pistol patty was now firing single shots with another weapon like with her own weapon oh so she had one too yeah oh my gosh and she was getting closer to him she's like walking towards him shooting at him um, that is terrifying. Yeah. He also, survived. He was okay. But oh, thank holy goodness. shit. Like, yeah, this was her, I guess, like, distraction to get, so they could get out of there. So they could get away. Well, and this is part of the case that I did know where she was just so brainwashed and she became a part of the SLA. And I, I knew there was something with mm-hmm. her and a gun because everyone talks about Patty Hearst with a gun. And um, it's... It's just so bizarre to think about someone who was kidnapped just completely transforming their behavior into yeah. something where they're, you know, assimilating into the group mm-hmm. that kidnapped them. Well, because she went from, and she's 19, like, Which is she's so a child. heavily influential. I mean, oh, yeah. it's similar to the Manson family. Yeah. yeah. Like, how he was very easily able to influence them, and a lot of them were very young. Yeah. Well, and she was... She went from being just a, just a general, like, fairly nice, fairly, doesn't do a whole lot, rich heiress. Yeah. To, she's in these promotional photos and videos with, like, giant, like, semi-automatic rifles and machine guns posing with them. And, you know, she's shooting up people. Like, it, it is so incredible, the change in three months. Yeah, I'm looking up a picture of her while you continue your story, by the way. So, to escape the area, Patty and the Harrises hijacked two cars, abducting the owners. And one of the owners, who is a young man, found Patty so personable that he was reluctant to even report the incident. What? She was kind and warm. She asked him how he was doing, if he was okay. She, yeah, it ends to the point where he was like, I don't even really want to report them. That, that they're no. kidnapping me and hijacking my car. Like, yeah. No, that's crazy. Also just found one of the promo posters and oh my God. Yeah. She's just hanging out there with a big fucking gun. Yeah. So Patty and the Harrises saw what was going down at the headquarters, saw the police raid going on and they were like, Nope, we're not going back there. Yeah. And they went on the run. So finally, on September 18th of 1975, so like a year and a half later. Gosh, she's been gone a long time. Yeah. After Chris crossing the country, Patty, or Tania, as she was calling herself, was finally captured in a San Francisco apartment. 
and was arrested for armed robbery. Because oh at gosh. this point, they're, they're not seeing her as the kidnap victim. They're seeing her as, like, one of the leaders of this group. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Because it's not one of those that's like, oh, in none of the sources I read did it have anything of, like, oh, at this point they were thinking she staged her kidnapping. No, they were fully aware that she was kidnapped. Yeah. But now they're like, well, she was kidnapped and joined. Oh, uh, so my she gosh. joined it. Yeah, so while being booked into jail, she listed her occupation as urban gorilla, and she asked her attorney to relay the following message. Tell everyone that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. <clears throat> so at the time of her arrest, Patty Hearst weighed only 87 pounds, and, oh my gosh. Yeah. And she was described by Dr. Margaret Singer in October of 75 as a low IQ, low affect zombie. Shortly after her arrest, there were clear signs of her trauma. Yeah. Her IQ was measured as 112, whereas previously it had been in the 130s. Yeah. And there were huge gaps in her memory regarding her pre-Tania life. She was smoking heavily and had nightmares. That's terrifying. In the justice system, without a mental illness or defect, a person is held fully responsible for any criminal action that's not done under duress. Yeah. Which, in this case, is defined as clear and present threat of death and serious injury. And since that wasn't the apparent case... The the idea of presenting brainwashing as a reason, as the basis of an acquittal, would be unprecedented at right. this time. Right, right. I mean, this is not something that they ever really faced. No. And Patty Hearst's trial was long and convoluted, although F. Lee Bailey, who's a highly renowned attorney. Well, and part of the dream team in your last case that you did, the OJ trial. He was part of the dream team. He was he represented the Boston Strangler. I mean, he is very well-known criminal defense attorney. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um which is he, I could totally see why. Yeah, he, he was so the he's attorney. representing Patty. Exactly. Um but she was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to 7 years of prison. On March 20th of 1976. And this was for armed robbery? Yeah. Yeah. So the jury at the time did not find the theory that she was brainwashed uh, to be plausible. Although today, her case is regarded by many as a clear, clear example of Stockholm Syndrome. Yes. Like that's obviously what this is. No, exactly. When Do you know when Stockholm Syndrome became a thing so the term stockholm syndrome it started to be used after a bank robbery with hostages in stockholm sweden in i think 73 but oh, it wasn't so it was around the same well time-ish. that's when the phrase started to happen it wasn't really understood or agreed that it was a thing until much later okay okay well so and did she she served these seven years in jail Well, we're getting there. Okay, sorry. So, Patty suffered a collapsed lung in prison, which... Is it because she weighed 87 pounds? uh, I'm sure that didn't help. Yeah. 
Um, this was the beginning of a series of medical problems while oh, she was in prison. No. She underwent emergency surgery, which prevented her from being able to testify against the Harrises on a bunch of charges, including robbery, kidnapping, and assault. I never knew that she had all the medical problems. Mm-hmm. So she, while she was in prison, she was actually being held in solitary confinement for security reasons. Oh my gosh. And she was actually granted bail for an appeal in November of 76 mm-hmm. um, on the condition that she was protected on bond. So her dad hired dozens of bodyguards. Yeah, of They're course. like, protect her. Yeah. So Superior Court Judge Talbot Callister said that he considered Patty's actions to not have been voluntary and he gave her probation for the sporting goods store charge after she pleaded no contest. Right. So to that, like, robbery and shooting... Yeah, yeah. This judge is like, she literally didn't... She didn't do this. Yeah. Um, Her bail, however, was revoked in May of 78 when her appeals failed and the Supreme Court declined to, to hear her case. Oh. So after that, the prison took no special security measures for her until she found a dead rat in yeah. her bunk on the day that William and Emily Harris were arraigned for their abduction. Oh my god. Yeah. So the Harrises were convicted on a simple kidnapping charge, which is different from more serious like kidnapping for ransom or kidnapping with injury, and were released after serving a total of eight years each. Okay. So actor John Wayne... In, okay, that was yeah. a spin that I, I know. was not it's expecting. A, okay, Because well, you still got to remember, she's famous. I know, I know, but I just mm-hmm. didn't so, know we were going to talk about John Wayne. We're going to talk about John Wayne for just a hot second. So, in speaking after the Jonestown cult deaths, yeah, he said that it was odd that people had just completely accepted the fact that Jim Jones had brainwashed 900 people into mass suicide. But they could not accept that a group like the SLA could have brainwashed a kidnapped teenage girl, which man. When I found that, that's what all I was like, a I smart have to comment. Yeah, because at at the wow. I think, so Jonestown happened in like seventy eight. Yeah, and so right a little bit after she was convicted and everything, but. Immediately when that happened, everyone was like, oh my gosh, this cult leader brainwashed these people. Yeah. These poor innocent people who all committed suicide because he brainwashed them, but are unwilling to give that same thought to, to a 19-year-old girl to one who person. was kidnapped. Like, yeah. So after serving two years in prison, President Carter commuted Patty's sentence. And the sentence was later completely pardoned by President Bill Clinton as one of his final acts in office on January 20th of 2001, which was actually his last day in office. So oh it was gosh. really one of the last things he did. Really, was literally was. So upon her release, she went on to uh, act in a few films, and she married her former bodyguard, Bernard Shaw. Mm-hmm. And she had two children with him. She became involved in a foundation helping children suffering from AIDS, and is active in a bunch of other charities and fundraising stuff. Yeah. And she's actually published a memoir called Patty Hearst, Her Own Story, 
and it was it was originally titled um every secret thing when it was released in 81 i bet that's good me too but it goes into a lot of detail i really want to read it yeah um but yeah so nowadays she's a mom involved in charities doing her thing no when i googled it surprisingly the majority of the photos were like present day patty like yeah. just you know being a normal celebrity yeah and i think she celebrity. gives i don't know if that's a thing but no fair i think she gives talks about it and i mean it yeah it's just crazy to have this in your background oh absolutely just like this story of like oh you know and when i was 19 i was kidnapped and assimilated into the group that kidnapped me and you know suffered from stockholm syndrome and i was and was involved in armed robbery and you know yeah that was just and it it's crazy because she's not old i think no. she's like 60 now or something no, no, like no. That. she's not old at all i was looking at the photos mm-hmm. again i don't know why i anticipated her being older probably because math is not my forte and... i mean same but i also think of like <laughs> someone who was an adult in the 70s must be super old now but she wasn't an adult she was she was 19, 19. Yeah. yeah but yeah she was a kid very was, much just yeah. a kid and it's just it it is so it's weird to look at it today because that the whole story researching it i was like why would you convict her of course course she has stockholm syndrome well yeah but if they didn't know yeah i mean that's not a thing it's not a thing then yeah uh, yeah she's she she shot up these banks she robbed these like she did the things yeah yeah. that she was convicted of but yeah so that is the story of the kidnapping of patty hurst who went from victim to uh an army gorilla to in jail for armed robbery to now a mother of two with a memoir, free from prison. Free from prison. Well, do you want to, let's jump into postmortem? Yep. I feel like I know who won. I think I do. You say yours first. Um, I think yours wins. Okay. Just because, oh, oh, well. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. There you go. You just so quickly, well, like, oh, well, yours was nowhere close. No, my only reasoning, my or my main reasoning behind it is. Yours had to do had with a, real, a person. Exactly. It had yeah. a real victim. Yes. And yours did too in the way of like. I mean, the victim was the world. Yeah. Like we were but, robbed of, of these yeah, pieces of but history. Mine was, Patty was kidnapped and like tortured kind of so yeah no i think you totally won this was an interesting topic and it was challenging to to pick something that was a little bit different but still in the same vein of uh what you know the cases we normally talk about yeah no i really enjoyed it and if this is something that y'all enjoy as well let us know if you want us to do more true crime that's you know, not murder focused. We would love to hear your thoughts there. on that because it's it's one of those things where it's like we. I mean, honestly, we're not hundred percent sure if you guys would like this episode. Yeah. We're very interested in these cases, so just give us feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, I don't know, shout us out on our social. Mm-hmm. You know, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Be sure to follow us while you're doing that. If you, yeah. If you want to do that, just give you us know. a little follow. Well, and also make sure to rate and review us. Give us those five stars. Leave us a review. Let you know what you liked on Apple Podcasts. 
Make sure to check out our Patreon as well. Yes, check out Patreon. There's some fun stuff there. There are now 13 additional episodes. Yes. And every other week we add a new one of those mm-hmm. and there are murder minis. And it's just and they're more so fun. There are more cases and yeah, they're just a little bit shorter, but there's a lot. So if you're loving blood and wine, you're missing yeah. out on a ton of content if you're not on Patreon. It's true. Um, Also, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. We're on all of them. We're on all of them. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Stitcher. I mean, Literally, there are so many. Yeah. If if you Google Blood and Wine, a true crime podcast, weirdly, so many websites come up before our actual website because... Y'all knows we have a website. You we can also do. listen to us there. Our podcast yep. is on the website. If first, if you're, I mean, if you're listening to it like on a computer, you know, open up that page, plug Just in your play. headphones, hit While play. You're at work. Yeah, um, make sure to plug in your headphones though if you are at work. Yeah, plug in your headphones. Same. We are not safe for work. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can subscribe on our website. No. So subscribe on so your either. favorite uh, podcast platform. You'll be notified when our episodes go live every, every Tuesday. Tuesday at 12.01 Central Time in the morning. Like, about as early on Tuesday as you can be. Literally yeah. as early. Yeah. <laughs> well, and thanks again to Bending Branch Winery. Yes, thank you it was so, so much. It was so fun to visit the vineyard, yes. to taste all of your wines. It and, was so good. And thank you so much for sponsoring this episode yes. with the Branch Texas Red, mm-hmm. which is their red blend. Again, it's won double gold at the rodeo, um, and it's... It's it's just a great like red wine. It, like it really red really wine. is. Um, so, but I promise next episode we are doing a white. We're doing a white. We, we realized it has been far too long since we've picked white. We yes. have been leaving y'all astray, but we have a few in mind. Yes, we've talked we do. about this. We just it's going <laughs> to yeah. be a really good we, one. We realized before this episode, we were like, oh my gosh, we haven't done a white since like. August or something. Well, so, and we sorry. did a Prosecco there. In the, no, your we Cava. Did. Yeah. We did the Cava we there did. in the bit, but, but that's not also, really a white. Fair, I always think of whites as a summer wine. Yeah. And it's been fall and winter. I also just almost almost exclusively drink red, so I'm just going to make excuses. But Just keep making them. Guys, fine. we're working on it. Yep. Also, um, send us your wine suggestions, because why not? Absolutely. If there's some wines that y'all think we should absolutely try and feature, literally just let us know. If we can find it in the store, we're probably going to do it. Absolutely. So, anyway, um, with that, uh, I think we're going to let y'all go. Yeah, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye. Bye.